Good morning and welcome to Legal Defense with Kirk and John. I'm Kirk O'Bear. I'm John Birdsall. How are you doing, Kirk? You are John Birdsall. I can tell. I can tell. (laughs) (laughs) What gave it away? I don't know. Yeah, I don't maybe, know. Maybe it's the fact it that I know your voice my, and I know your face and things like well, that. Well, maybe it's how I jumped out of my seat and yelled objection. I can tell you that according to some eyewitness identification experts, I, I shouldn't rely upon my, um, my, how shall I say, my perceived familiarity with uh, what I think you look like. But anyway. <laughs> well, it's very suggestive because, um, you know, it's kind of a show up and uh, – you know, there should be non-suspect fillers and, you know, I mean, I'm just just saying there's a lot wrong with this ID. So uh, there's been stuff happening in the Rittenhouse case as we grind closer to um, a supposed trial date. And I don't know if you saw earlier this week, there's been a, a defense expert report submitted regarding uh you know, like an overall self-defense theory. Now, I, I find this a little odd simply because we see those type of expert reports come in when it's an officer or somebody who's been trained on, you know, restraint, use of force, but in a controlled manner. I, I don't really, I'm not familiar with the case I've ever had where I was able to utilize an expert that would testify basically about, you know, a, a layperson, a civilian's, apparent state of mind uh, as a self-defense matter. I don't know if you've ever had experience with that, but to me, that seems like it kind of. That's a very rare, weird thing. And, um, you know, what did the judge say about that? Is he allowing that? I I don't know that there's been a ruling on it yet. I think it's just been proffered as potential testimony. But, you know, I've looked at this case all along as, you know, the, the video that actually captures the shooting really speaks for itself. I mean, there's, it, it's, it's very clear and it's not like you have to guess what's going on. You, you know, the video I'm talking about, right? It's been, yeah. it's been released. I mean, it shows Rittenhouse firing the weapon and in, into the face of one person, the chest of another person. And, and I think over on the, the torso area of yet another person. And, I mean, you, it's a clear view. You can see what's going on. I mean, if the jury wants to believe that he was um, in fearful for his life and responded in a way that he was defending himself, they'll, they'll do it based on that video. I'm puzzled as to what an expert would uh, add to that. And it seems to me like it's kind of gilding the lily a little bit. You know, you're you're uh, I don't know. I mean, I've had that issue come up before, but mostly from a client that wants to get a little more creative than the law will allow if you know what I mean, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. hey, why don't we call it an expert to say that I was scared? Well, how, how are we going to do that? You know, <laughs> you weren't. and if you were, you got to say so, you know, I don't know. Um, but there's all kinds of other weird things that are going on with the case. And, you know, Judge Schrader has been um, trying to keep it all under control and is bound and determined to make sure the case goes forward. I believe it's in November, if I'm not mistaken. And um, so, you know, we see a lot of posturing on both sides. You know, the state was trying to do some tricky things that he didn't allow. The defense was also trying to bring in. Well, the one thing that really got my attention was they wanted to bring in the fact that one of the victims of the shooting uh, has been convicted of a child sex offense in the past. And <laughs> the judge like, was like, okay. how is oh, yeah. that relevant at all? How well, we just, we just want people to know that, you know, like as if. And, and of course, the potential jurors in this case are anybody 
in Kenosha County who watches the news, you know? So <laughs> that, that the fact that that is something that supposedly happened is already out there. And the potential juries already know if they've been t- paying any attention at all. So anyway, um, this is a, a, another interesting thing about the case is that the judge is not going to permit advanced written, uh, you know, mail-in questionnaires from the jurors. And his commentary on that was that, at least from his perspective, it, it really just, especially in a case that has some notoriety, uh, it just invites the potential for people to uh, be unable to resist the impulse to um, do a little research on their own, you know what I mean? Or to craft their answers when they figure out what the case is all about, which is a kind of a good point. Now, I've had many cases, I'm sure you have as well, where we use written questionnaires in advance. And that's because if we're anticipating that a double or a triple or a quadruple jury pool isn't going to be sufficient because so many people are likely to be conflicted due to pretrial publicity in some way. I've seen questionnaires used basically to try and weed out people that aren't even going to be, you know, part of the bigger mix um, to, to try and be a little bit more efficient. But he does have a point. If um, you're supposed to not know what case you're showing up for, you know, when you when you arrive for jury duty, right? I mean, right? Yeah, in theory, yeah, in theory. I mean, I mean, that's part of how we prevent people from trying to do their homework and getting an opinion on things. And yeah, it, you know, if I were on jury duty and I knew I was being called tomorrow, and I, I knew I was in Kenosha and I knew it was right around the time of the Rittenhouse trial, I'd be awfully curious if I'm going to end up being one of those jurors, you know. Um, but what have what have you found? I'm kind of split about whether juror questionnaires are a good idea or not. But what do you think about that? Well, I'm generally in favor of them for um, obvious reasons. As a defense lawyer, I want as much information as I can possibly have before I walk in to pick a jury. So I want to know, obviously, I want to know the basics. How old are you? Um, What do you do for a living? Uh, Do you have connections to law enforcement? Um, That sort of thing. Yeah. And um, and that's all non-case specific, you know, Um, obviously, I would love to craft questions that um, and I did this, by the way, I did this in a um, uh, child abuse case. Well, it was a reckless death case, but um, and asked, you know, the questions the judge allowed it to ask questions about, you know, have you ever been accused of child abuse? Have you ever known anybody has? Has anybody in your family? You know, that sort of stuff. Because we wanted to know what connections they had to that very sensitive topic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think that if you're going to have a significant case where you're going to have an extra large jury pool, um, it actually makes sense for the court to give them a little bit of a heads up about what's it about so that you can be a little more efficient in the voir dire process. Um, and, you know, where there's obviously where you can flag some very obvious people that are going to be struck either for cause or are very obviously going to be, you know, struck by one of the parties. So I'm, you know, I'm kind of in favor. Okay. Well, and I think that the issue in this particular case is that some of the, some of the very reasons why you would send out an advanced written questionnaire to be returned well in advance of jury selection would be, you know, 
what have you learned about this case? What have you watched? Have you seen reports of this case in the media? You'd probably also want to know, were you at the protests that occurred in Kenosha County? You know, because I'm mm-hmm. sure there's going to be a lot of people that were involved on one side of the controversy or the other and and so on. So I don't know. I mean, it's it's obviously one of those things that is at the judge's discretion, like completely in his discretion, because that's not well, a reversible look, error. Look, in any way. Let's, let's face it, especially in that, that case, if they didn't have this advanced information, you would add another, I mean, two days <laughs> just yep. on just on sorting out those questions that you just posed. Right. Where you can just get them all in paper form and you have them all teed up and everybody knows what's going on. I, I mean, I don't see the harm in it, frankly. Yeah. Um, okay. like, you know, people yeah. have different opinions about it. But again, that's that is something that squares fall, falls squarely within the judge's authority to conduct the trial that the judge sees fit. You know, it, it's not the kind of thing that could really be appealed unless it was some sort of major problem that prejudiced someone beyond repair, you know? Um, but, you know, he's an interesting judge. Uh, I've had quite a few trials in front of him and, and he is, uh, I don't know if you know this, but he has for years rallied against um, or rallied for rather the repeal of the substitution of judge statute. And every time somebody requests a substitution in his case, he makes a very lengthy record and, and talks for about an hour about why he believes that it's improper and violates the rights of the citizens to have a duly elected official preside over a case. Um, <laughs> in other words, he takes it very personally. <laughs> yeah, well, you know what? Um, he was probably around when before that statute was passed. I think he was. There was, yes. a, there was a very good reason why that statute was passed. It was passed in the 70s. And the reason was is because oftentimes, you know, I mean, judges are just human beings and human beings have um, personalities and they have conflicts with other people. Um, they have, and by conflicts, I don't mean legal conflicts. I mean, like, um, just like uh, there's just some judges that you just don't want to be in front of for, right. because hey John, they're- we got to take a break, but I love where you're going with this. And I want okay. you to tell us more of the history behind this thing. But we'll oh, I will. Back right after and we are back with more legal defense. Wow. And that was um, radio voicey. That, I know. I know. I know. I Because, you know, I've I've been told I have a very, 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 you know, seductive radio, radio voice. <laughs> I, um, I, okay. You know, Did I I'm, tell you that? I don't. I don't. Think no. I no. No. Many of my fans have told me. No. I'm. Just, I see. And, I'm and for those of you that don't know what John looks like, he is the spitting image of Keith or Sutherland, in my opinion. Um, yeah. Yeah. Bye. Um, yeah. And uh, usually, you know, when he's playing some like you know tough marine guy or a CIA agent, but um, yeah, I was anyway. thinking more. I was thinking more like a drug addled um, bum that, that wakes up in the gutter, you know, that, well, that version. No, just it's, it's a little of both. That's in the morning. And then later on, I'm the CIA guy. Yeah. So, Hey, before the break, we were getting into the history behind that substitution statute. And right. you were starting to tell us about you know, what, what version existed prior to it being a statutory rate. So before this statute was passed, 
if you had a problem with a judge that you just felt they were too harsh or maybe a, you know, maybe a government lawyer thought they were too lenient or whatever, um, uh, you know, you could ask them to recuse themselves, but you had to do that and you had to lay out the reasons. And it, it resulted, and this was like a uniform thing all over the state. It was, it resulted in a lot of like super contentious, hard feelings on the judge's part, on the lawyer's part. It was very embarrassing for the judges. It was embarrassing for the lawyers. It was upsetting to everybody. It was just like a, it was just like, it was a, it was a situ. It was, it was just a situation that everybody hated having to do. And so this was a way to allow you to no questions asked. You file a little form. I would like to substitute judge so-and-so and boom, it's done, and you get randomly assigned to a new judge. And I should say in some counties, it's random in air quotes where they will purposely, the chief judge will purposely, uh, if you substitute on one judge, they will purposely put you with the judge that everybody else um, hates the second amount. Second and um, <laughs> so, so sometimes but, you go from the actually, frying pan into you know, the fire. The way I've heard that explained, John, is that it actually makes – sense because the the assignment of that judge it can be taken into consideration when the chief judge in that uh, district has to make the decision based on workload they can they're allowed to look and see who has the lightest workload mm -hmm. and it, if that just so happens to coincide with the judge that gets the second uh, most yeah. Yeah. Uh, substitution requests it's natural that it goes that way so but um, I've, I've also had thoughts about this because this issue's come up at various points and some judges that I, or prosecutors in particular that wonder why we even have this statute. They view it as sort of like a defense maneuver or a trick or something like that. Um, but one thing that a lot of people don't realize is that in many, many cases, the prosecution has the ability to select the judge based on the timing of when they file a criminal complaint. That's and true. What I, mean by, what I mean by that is I'll give you Sheboygan County as an example. Judges go in six week cycles where they take turns being on intake. And that, that's not uniform throughout the state. It varies. But in, in this county, in Sheboygan County in particular, a six week block is when the judge is handling all the new criminal complaints that have been filed for that period of time. So it's like, you got to do your, you got to pay your dues for six weeks. Then you spend the next, uh, you know, four segments. So in other words, 20, 24 weeks um, working through those cases. And hopefully you've got them all resolved by the time you're going into your next intake cycle. That's kind of the goal. So let's say you're the prosecutor and you're like, oh, we're in an intake cycle right now, or we think this judge is going to be too lenient on this particular case. Let's air quote, investigate it for another couple of weeks and then we'll file a criminal complaint and ask for a warrant, you know, when the harsh judge that we like more is on the rotation. So given the fact that the prosecutors have uh, somewhat of an unfettered ability to select the judge, this is the balancing of that because that would allow them too much power. Now I say that that's true in many cases, but of course, if it's someone that they arrest, uh, you know, and a tactical, <laughs> you know, uh, takedown by, by, with, uh, with force and the person or a person's on the run, they're a fugitive, whatever. They got to take them into custody right away. And the person's going to be entitled to a certain amount of relatively uh, quick due process. 
um, that will require a hearing in front of whatever judges on intake. So it's not complete control that they have, but for the vast majority of cases uh, where it could be charged today, tomorrow, next week, the next month, whatever, um, the the prosecutors do have the ability to have a direct impact on which judges assigned to the case. So I, I view the fact that the the other side has the ability to file a substitution request as as a counter measure, a counterbalance. So when it was first passed, um, it was a substitution request for any defendant. So if you had multiple defendants, mm-hmm. um, and I'll give you a perfect example. If you remember, I think you were in Wisconsin at this time, but there was a murder up in Green Bay where a guy got thrown into a vat at oh, the yeah. uh, You remember this? I do. Yeah. There was there was eight people charged, <clears throat> and um, most of them had lawyers from Milwaukee. And at the time, every defendant had an independent right to a substitution request. And so what they did was each of the defendants, like one would file a substitution and they get another judge. And they just kept doing that with all the defendants. They didn't and need until, they, until they got to the judge that they wanted. Yeah. And so it was sometime after that that they changed the statute to make it so if you have co-defendants, you have to be in agreement on a substitution. So, well, let me ask you that, though, because I, I seem to recall coming across a situation where one remedy for the fact that if one of the defendants is not in agreement, that could be a basis to sever the defendants. Um, could be. You know, that's, a, that's a very complicated issue. Strategies behind uh, charging people as co-defendants or, as we know them in the federal system, as co-conspirators, conspirators, um, which almost always makes it far easier for the government to bring in uh, a larger uh, spectrum of evidence because the, you know, they're proving the involvement of various people named and unnamed co-conspirators, as well as the fact that um, conspiracy law includes knowledge and adopting the, the purpose behind the conspiracy, which can include all kinds of stuff that relates to a person's state of mind, you know? Um, so prosecutors love to merge defendants, just like they like to merge um, charges that aren't necessarily related to each other. And I've always found this fascinating that there's this rule of judicial economy, which sounds like a cop out to me. You know, if you've got, if you've got, due process, you've got constitutional rights of, of a defendant facing trial. Where does this, you know, we can save time and money part of it come into play? You know, yeah, it's, 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 it's easier for everyone if we try the guy's, you know, sexual assault from 10 years ago, along with his theft of baseball cards from the grocery store two weeks ago. I mean, I'm being ridiculous, <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? They, they, they will try and get uh, things put together. And and that's always a problem. And I've had many cases where I had a great defense for one set of charges, but not so great of one for another. Or the defendant, may, my client may wish to testify with regard to some of those acts, but not others. And those can be a basis to sever charges. But, you know, I don't know about you, but I always get a great deal of resistance when I'm trying to convince a judge that one trial should be split into two. Well, no, they they want to move as many cases along as fast as possible. And, you know, and to them, they have the convenient excuse of, you know, judicial economy. It's like Mark Knopfler always said, we've got to move these refrigerators. 
<laughs> Thank you for that dated reference, but yes, I, I certainly got it. But uh, some people are old enough to know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's only if you want your MTV will you know exactly what I'm talking. So about. today, I I also used a dated reference. Um, <clears throat> I sent a uh, a text to one of our associates, and um, when I didn't get a response, I sent a little meme with Glenn Close from Fatal Attraction saying, (laughs) I'm not going to be ignored, Dan. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you would have to um, have seen that movie. (laughs) But uh, I'll tell you what, let's let's introduce, let's tee up for the next segment, uh, um, a discussion of uh, two cases, Um, one that are currently scheduled in front of the um, U.S. Supreme Court, one is a gun rights case out of New York State, and the other is a an abortion case out of Mississippi. And the gun rights um, is a New York law, New York City, I should say. New York's well, actually, it might be New York State. I have to check on that. But um, that um, whether the the question presented is whether the state of New York's yeah, it is a state. Denial of a petitioner's applications for a concealed carry licenses for self-defense violated the Second Amendment. Because in New York, you have to show cause why you want a concealed carry. <clears throat> oh, interesting. And, um, of course, Wisconsin is very different. Um, and then in the Mississippi case, it's a outright ban after 15 weeks. Uh, outright abortion ban after 15 weeks. Well, of course, is right on the heels of this Texas law. Right. Um, and so I, I think those are going to be, and, and really, and just a, as a teaser here, um, both these cases have wide ranging implications beyond their immediate subject matter. Oh, right. Well, we'll be right back. And we're back. Uh, our, uh, residence scholar on all things Supreme court ish. Attorney, <laughs> Attorney John Birdsall is ready to give us a presentation uh, on two uh, very important cases. Let's start with this New York case because I'm fascinated by this. Yeah, you know, the New York case is actually fascinating. It's, um, uh, well, first of all, we should back up because in 2008, the Supreme Court in a case called Heller, um, for the first time in the 200 plus years of the Second Amendment's existence, um, declared that the very text of the Second Amendment um, allowed, in fact, required uh, the right of citizens to carry um, weapons for their protection, to possess them for their protection. And it's an individual right. In other words, the Second Amendment specifically says um, a well-regulated militia for the security of a free state, the the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And the reason that, you know, that most scholars will say that that was drafted that way is because at the time, um, militias were the only way that you could have, there was no standing army. And so they used militias and the militias were made up of people, just farmers and whoever. And so that's why they had to have guns. Um, but actually, just as an aside, those militia were mainly concerned in the South to, to have the ability to have um, uh, to be able to raise these small armies 
for the purposes of controlling slave populations. Right. So, and to and to retrieve them from northern territories. When um, that too. Yes. Um, so, Heller, um, and I think with some, you know, plausible um, legal analysis, you know, does say that there's that that there should be a personal right to have a firearm under the just on the text of the and the historical analysis of the Second Amendment. But of course it ignores the purpose that the Second Amendment was originally right. grounded in. But now what I think that they're going to say is they're I, I think they're teeing this up to to expand Heller to um, not only allow a possession, because Heller had some restrictions on it. It said you can't just carry a gun for any reason anywhere. You know, you can restrict them in schools. You can restrict them in hospitals. You can, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, but I think they're about to rip that Band-Aid off and say, nope. Second Amendment says you can have it anywhere you want, anytime you want, anytime, anywhere, in any manner. And um, uh, I don't know. I don't know if you have a thought on that or I do, I do because as you and I both know, um, the, the number of restrictions that are placed on someone by virtue of their status are, are many. Um, just look at the ATF form that everybody has to fill out before um, getting a firearm, assuming that you live in a jurisdiction where that's required. And it has a long list of things that you have to certify, you know, under penalty of, perjury or, you know, making false statements to government officials, that all those things are correct. And it includes things such as I have not um, uh, given up my citizenship in favor of citizenship to another country. That's something that automatically bans you from being able to legally possess a firearm. If you are a, well, there's some vague language of here. Are you a user of narcotic drugs including marijuana, which is kind of weird because marijuana is not a narcotic drug, but, um, and it also doesn't say now or in the past or whatever, but that also would render you ineligible, you know, a prohibited person. There's the whole category of people that are convicted of either a felony or a misdemeanor crime of domestic violence that are categorically under federal law are prohibited from possessing firearms. So this is what's interesting to me is because I do see, at least with regard to that issue and how states should have the right to individually regulate this. I mean, especially if you're looking at the second amendment, as you say, under Heller, it's a right that um, inures to the benefit of real people, individual people, all people, right? It, it doesn't say, doesn't have all those limitations in it. They're not built into it. So where the federal government gets away with um, treating this as uh, nationwide categorical bans, uh, I've always thought is a bit problematic. It, here's another thing. And I know that there's another case out there brewing on this same sort of issue. And uh, I don't remember what jurisdiction it is. I want to say New Jersey, but I could be wrong about that. There was a case not too long ago that was getting ready to go. Um, I think the petition for certiorari had been granted and it was in the briefing phase last time I looked at it. But it has to do with someone challenging the federal government's determination that a felon uh, in, you know, cannot possess a firearm under their laws when the person can obtain relief in their own individual state, either through an expungement process or 
because in that particular state, when one is convicted of a nonviolent felony, there can either be a waiting period or there can just be, you know, a distinction that is only for certain types of felonies, which is inconsistent with federal law. So that's where that's weird. If you think about it, let's say, okay, I've got a someone's got a felony drunk driving. Okay, drunk driving. One might argue it's a violent crime, but it isn't, you know, like other violent crimes that we have. It's not doesn't follow the model for why we have those restrictions on felons possessing firearms. I'll give you a better example. Writing a bad check on a closed account can be a felony or being a fiduciary for a trust account and failing to file a report, a quarterly report on time can end up resulting in a felony conviction. So what do those things have to do with being able to possess a firearm or not? And I know that how different states interpret things. And hey, we've got an issue right here in Wisconsin, this whole thing where the DVO modifier, which is kind of a farce, you're familiar with that, right? I mean, it's where, where on a case, they'll just say, oh, this is a domestic, domestic violence, not just a battery, battery, domestic violence, with the idea being that it would flag people that are domestic violence perpetrators. And the presumption then is that, hey, these are people to watch out for. So, you know, the practice had been for quite some time that you would have a case where you'd get you could negotiate dropping that DVO modifier. And well, as we well, all know, it makes no it, difference whatsoever. It, you know? Yeah. Good. Look, this whole thing about either felonies or um, uh, or even misdemeanor DV cases about prohibiting firearms is is a silly demarcation in one that I think is rooted in racial animus mm-hmm. um, largely. And and I, and I think the back the facts um, back that up. And you and I have both had countless clients over the years, um, white clients, mm-hmm. who are scared to death of a felony, and they could care less about the jail. They just want to be able to hunt. They just grew up hunting. They want or, to, be able or to, to have their, their firearm, you know, for their... They, well, to have their firearm to hunt, and, and or just to have it. Yeah, you're right. <clears throat> and um, I, I feel the same way about the felon demarcation in the gun context as I do about the voting context. Correct. And and it has always upset me because it's it's a it's completely arbitrary. There's no empirical evidence or any studies that say somehow this is going to cut down on gun violence or somehow this is going to um, increase the or uh, you know the, the 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 value of voting. You know um, uh, the collateral consequences of criminal convictions, particularly felonies, is is really so wide-ranging um, that that the average populace doesn't have any idea about that. You know, they just my think, learned, well, my learned professor. they don't go to prison. Yeah. Oh, my learned professor, we must take a break for our commercial. Oh, sponsors. no. All right. More later. But we'll be right back. And we are back with the learned professor and <laughs> Kirk O'Bear. <laughs> His sidekick. Yeah. So, you know, we were talking about the uh, the gun rights case, which if you wanted to look it up, it's um, uh, uh, New York. Let's see here. New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Corlett. And um, and the basic the basic argument is that since Heller says that there is a. Um, 
individual right to possess a firearm at home, that was the big analysis by Justice Scalia, the the Rifle Association, the New York one, argues that the Second Amendment protects the right to carry a firearm outside the house for self-defense. And they say that the state abridges, quote, a constitutional right, the Constitution, state abridges a right that the Constitution guarantees to all people when carrying a firearm for self-defense and is deemed a crime unless one can pre- preemptively convince a state official that she enjoys an especially good reason for wanting to do so. And, you know, it's, it's such a natural, um, uh, it's such a natural extension of Heller. And although I will say that in 2010, they rejected a similar claim out of Chicago called McDonald versus city of Chicago. If you remember that there was a similar (laughs) ban in place in the city of Chicago. Um, But you know, it was a close call. And I think it's with the 6-3 supermajority of conservatives on the court now, I'm, I'm feeling like this is, gonna, this is going to um, uh, be a blockbuster case. Block- I think I'm, I'm feeling it, too. I feel the yeah. same way. We'll, we'll see. So, When's that up for oral argument, by the way? That is up. And um, let me see here. I believe early November, but I can... We'll be on the lookout for that then. Um, yeah. What What do you know about this? Uh, what's the other case that you were talking about? Was it the Louisiana case? Uh, Mississippi. Mississippi. I was close. And uh, yeah, it's Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. Let me tell you, <laughs> if you've been following this uh, series of cases, really, um, there was the emergency appeal in the summer about the SB8, which is the Texas ban, basically, that says six weeks, um, you can't have an abortion after six weeks when a lot of women don't know they're pregnant. Most women don't know they're pregnant after six weeks. Um, and it's enforced by <laughs> it's it's blatantly unconstitutional. OK, mm-hmm. it's enforced by individuals, not the government. And they, oh, purposely, yeah. they purposely did that to evade judicial review. Now, the Justice Department has just filed an emergency uh, petition in federal court in Texas seeking to bar its further enactment because the Supreme Court allowed it to, without ruling on the merits, they allowed it to go into effect. Yeah. The reason that that law is so important is because I think it changes the Overton window on what's acceptable, you know, because it used to be under Roe, its viability is the test, Right. And viability is usually at like 24 weeks, I think, mm-hmm. um, ish. Um, you know, it's that's kind of a moving target because mm-hmm. science is is ever evolving. Um, and I always found that even in law school, um, I always found that to be a curiously strange, almost kind of like impossible to define or unenforceable test mm-hmm. because science does change. But sure. Be that as it may, um, the the Texas ruling kind of teed up the Dobbs case because Dobbs says 15 is a straight ban after 15 weeks. And so when I say it changes sort of the Overton window or what's acceptable or what's deemed acceptable or what's deemed thinkable, is it now thinkable by this court to say, yeah, 15 weeks is just fine? 
I mean, I know Rose said viability, but, um, you know, uh, they'll come up with something. <laughs> you know, I don't know exactly. No. Well, right. Um, I mean, the, well, hey, let's face it. The, the concept of viability is very different today than it was. Yeah. Back then. Yeah, I mean, heck, it's, it's commonplace. For, the, interesting, the interesting part is, you know, I'll, you know, the, you have to give the pro-life um, forces some do here on their um, uh, long game that they've been playing because uh, they've been they've been searching for this Dobbs case for 30 years. Mm-hmm. And um, and uh, and and now they've got the court and they have the case teed up Um and when they petitioned to the Supreme Court to have this case heard, they did not ask them to overturn Roe. And that was a different court, if you remember. When they petitioned, it was last fall. This was before Amy Coney Barrett got on board. And then when they filed their merits brief, they explicitly asked for it because now <laughs> it was a different court. Yeah. And so, and the, 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 the thing that's really beyond um, the facts of this case. Uh, is when we talk about the, the the basis that Roe rested on in the first place, which was a case called Griswold versus Connecticut. If you remember that from law school, 1968 Supreme Court case that found that there was a right of privacy mm-hmm. in the Constitution. And that has been a contentious um, boogeyman, I think, for a lot of conservative legal scholars in the sense that the Constitution does not say that. Of course, of the Constitution course. doesn't say a lot of things. Yeah. Constitution yeah, doesn't say if that it, you shouldn't. If you uh, think through the amendments and you right. kind of toss them around and mix them up, then you might find privacy in there somewhere. You know? <laughs> so, um, uh, but that's what Roe was originally based on <clears throat> was this right to privacy. And the right to privacy obviously is is a huge, huge thing when it comes to all kinds of interactions with the government, whether it's police interactions, regulatory interactions, um, and 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 things of you know just like things we can't even imagine right now. And so um, that could be a basis for them to maybe not explicitly overturn Roe, but to make it functionally. A dead letter, you know. Um, who knows? Uh, one of the problems I think the court has is that they are fast losing legitimacy, or at least, oh. at least that's according to a most recent Quinnipiac poll, which said that I believe their approval rating was in the thirties. Well, it, there hasn't been the regular amount of activity coming from the court that we would normally see. So, I, you know, what good does it do to have an approval rating when it's based more on the fact that we had a president that got lucky and was able to get a bunch of his uh, handpicked justices? Well, I think, I think actually part of their um, poor rating is from conservatives who don't think oh, the court is oh, going well, to I, I know it. Yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah. You know, and they're, they're probably the mad at Kavanaugh because he's got COVID, I, right? So. Yeah, I think the bigger point is that Chief Justice Roberts is a self-described institutionalist, and he wants the court to have that institutional credibility because, as we all know, 
the court can issue all kinds of decisions and they're the, you know, final say and they're the, the supreme law of the land, et cetera, et cetera, by their own admonition. But at the same time, how do they enforce it? Well, they enforce it by writing on a piece of paper, here's an order. But they don't have an army. <laughs> they don't have a gun. You know, they don't have police power. And, you know, Andrew Jackson found that to be um, a, a, a very early concept in American history when the Supreme Court said that the Cherokee Nation was indeed a domestic nation of its own with its own government. And and he's like and they had passed the Indian Removal Act. And he's like, well, that's a nice decision. Let's see them enforce it. Because <laughs> he's just going to go ahead and do whatever he wants yeah, to do. Is so, that where we started saying you and what army? Because they didn't have one, right? <laughs> so, but the you know the point is is that the Supreme Court can have all these interpretations of whatever they want, but at the same time, um, if nobody's listening to them, what are they? You know. Well, you know, it also reminds me of the fact that after Brown v. Board came out. Uh, Another you know, national, example. national Guard troops had to be called in to enforce, you know, a, a uh, Supreme Court decision. That well, because a lot of states, states were like, um, I, yeah, we don't care what <laughs> Brown says. We're having segregation and that's the end of the story. You know, <laughs> Thanks for your input, Supreme Court. Yeah, no, really nice opinion, but we're going to keep doing what we're doing. Well, hey, dude, I got to tell you, it's time to wrap up the show. Well, that's a shame, but we will have more next week. Um, cause there's more on the Supreme court docket. Trust me. Oh, there always is. So join us next week as you can every Saturday, right here on 1330 and 101.5 WHBL. This has been legal defense with Kirk and John. Have a great weekend.